Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I am your host, Brad Hicks, and this is the Spooky SLV Podcast. Let's get started. Good evening, everyone. This is Brad Hicks, your host for the Spooky SLV Podcast, and we are doing today a Halloween special. Um, it's going to be longer than normal. I've got two tales out of Texas, and then I've got a um, one from H.P. Lovecraft and possibly one more. Um, it's going to be fun, I think. I mean, I enjoy the hell out of Halloween anyway. I used to really enjoy it. I'd get dressed up every Halloween, and then it just got old. <laughs> and I got old. So we'll get started first with the two tales from Texas, and then we'll get on to the Lovecraft. And there may be another story after that, a longer story. This is going to be a longer uh, episode for sure. So let's get started. Okay, the first story we have is The White Lady of Rio Frio, a ghostly tale of love and murder. Written by Spring Salt. The Frio River Canyon, with its cool and refreshing temperatures, hides some unique Texas mysteries. Not the least of which is the appearance of what's said to be the White Lady of Rio Frio. She's said to be visible in a translucent fog, hazy enough to make you blink and think twice about what you actually saw. Rumor has it she haunts the banks of the river as a result of her tragic love story. The story goes that Maria Juarez, and her sister lived in the canyon with Gregorio, who was a handsome vaquero married to Maria's sister. Although Maria was far younger than her sister, they were close, and Maria helped raise her nieces and nephews, longing for the time when she too could marry and have a family of her own. As she grew up, her brother-in-law noticed how beautiful she was becoming. Although he was married to her sister, he developed a forbidden passion for her. However, that love was unrequited. Maria fell in love with another vaquero by the name of Anselmo Tobar. He, count, he courted her, and he, she knew he would soon propose. When Gregorio told Maria of his love, she scoffed and told him she loved another. He flew into a rage that scared her, causing her to run home and wait a visit from Anselmo, at which she would tell him of the incident. That night, Maria heard a noise outside, which she thought was Anselmo. She went out to meet him, but instead was met by Gregorio. He drew a pistol, fatally shooting her directly in the heart. If he couldn't have Maria, he wasn't going to allow Anselmo to have her either. As curious locals came out at the sound of gunfire, Gregorio ran to hide in the hay of a nearby barn. He spent the night there as a search party and dogs were gathered to find the killer. At that point, no one suspected Gregorio. The women of the canyon prepared Maria for burial, dressing her in the white wedding dress of her sister, hence the belief that her spirit is the white lady of Rio Frio. I'm braiding her hair with white ribbons and wild flowers. Finally, the dogs picked up Gregorio's scent and led the search party to the barn. To everyone's shock, he confessed to the murder, swearing his love for Maria. He was arrested and sent to trial, at which he was found guilty. He was sentenced to a long prison term. Anselmo Tobar married another years later and went on to have a family. Maria was buried at the Rio Frio Cemetery in an unmarked grave. The story continues that because her soul wasn't fulfilled on earth, nor was she at rest, she roams the canyon as a spirit, comforting young children in need. 
On a cold night, the story says that the white lady of Rio Frio will cover a child or simply sit at the foot of their bed watching over them. Children believe they have witnessed the spirit which they say is kindly and dressed all in white. That's better than La Llorona. <laughs> I like that one. La Llorona scares the hell out of me. <laughs> all right, let's get on to the next one. All right, the second one from Texas is called Chased by the West Texas Owl Man. Giant Owl Cryptid Chases Hunters. The giant owl creature chased the pickup, clawing at the tailgate and scratching the metal. The hunters in the pickup bed screamed like little girls as the vehicle went full speed down the two-lane blacktop. The white creature flapped its enormous wings, pale against the West Texas night. Evil red eyes shone in the darkness. It kept pace with the pickup, talons screeching against the tailgate. One of the hunters gathered enough courage to raise his rifle and pull the trigger. This is the tale of the West Texas Owl Man. When a group of Texas high school students went out hunting rabbits one night, they couldn't have guessed they'd become the prey of a terrifying mothman-like entity. I personally interviewed Jamie, one of the eyewitnesses, who had been a friend of my father's for 30 years. Jamie is an honest man, and everything he told me about his strange encounter had the ring of sincerity. In 1981, Jamie was a high school freshman in West Texas. One night, he went out with five buddies to hunt jackrabbits. The friends piled up into a pickup and drove out southwest of the small town of Sundown, Texas. They were driving around the oil lease, then called the Central Mallet Unit, when all of a sudden the pickup died. Around 20 minutes later, he, the vehicle started up again and by itself. Despite how strange that was, they were having too good a time to pay it any mind. Being young and dumb, Jamie said, we didn't think anything about it. They drove a little farther, then stopped and climbed out of the pickup, ready for the hunt. Carrying their rifles and lights, they walked out into the dark. After a while, they walked over a hill and looked down, a, looked down on a fence line 60 yards away. And that's when they saw it. Something big and white was sitting on the fence. They stared at it in the distance, trying to decide what it was. The creature looked like an owl, only five times as large. What the heck is that, Jamie said. The young hunters shone their lights on the white creature. It just turned its head and looked at us, Jamie said. The giant owl's red eyes shone bright above its beak. It stared at the hunters and spread its enormous wings 12 feet across, and they saw its red chest as the creature took flight. All of a sudden, this thing takes off, Jamie said. It kind of just started going toward us. Well, now we're scared. They ran back to the pickup, hearts pounding. Then one guy slid behind the wheel, Jamie got in the passenger seat, and then three others jumped in the pickup bed. The driver sped off, but they could see the giant owl creature coming after them. This thing was following us, Jamie said. The three guys in the back were screaming like girls. The driver punched the accelerator, but the creature kept coming, gaining on them. Its huge wings were pale in the night, and its red eyes shone through the darkness. One of the hunters in the pickup bed raised his rifle and took aim and pulled the trigger. Nothing happened. The rifle wouldn't fire. I asked Jamie if he had thought that his friend had just been too terrified to flick off the safety or chamber around, but he didn't think so. He had the impression of something, an unexplained force, preventing the weapon from firing. The three hunters in the back of the pickup screamed. Now the creature was right on their tail. It was hovering over the vehicle, Jamie said. I mean, actually right behind us. They clawed at the tailgate and scratching up the truck. By that time, he had gotten onto the highway and it was still following us. 
I bet we were going as fast as that truck could go when we were all pale. We were scared to death. The giant owl thing chased them into sundown. We finally swung into town. Hell, we flew into town, Jamie said. And a sundown cop was parked at the end of town on the south side. We passed him and then he came right behind us. Never even turned on his lights. We turned off to go toward my dad's house and the cop just kept going straight. He didn't stop us. I might have thought I was dreaming, but when I saw the cop didn't even stop us, he just kept going past. I knew he had seen something also. In sundown, the giant owl gave up the chase. They reached home alive, but terrified. I was so sick, Jamie said. I couldn't go to school for two days. A lot of people didn't believe us, but other people had kind of seen something like that before out there. But nobody had really got that close or experienced it in such as we did. We were scared to death. I don't know what it was. It's always been imprinted on my memory. In the late 1960s, an entity similar to what Jamie saw that night in sundown was witnessed in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Descriptions gave of what could be called the Mothman corresponded in some details to what Jamie saw. A pale creature with red eyes and roughly 12-foot wingspan. Author John Keel noted reports of UFO activity over Point Pleasant as well as cars stalling without explanation in areas where the Mothman had been seen. Well, that's a good one. <laughs> and I can imagine them boys was a little scared. Yeah, they were driving like hell. <laughs> I would be too. Hell, there was one time me and Jimmy just goofing around out in his little Chevy Love pickup truck. We turned in uh, at the Alamosa Cemetery. They hadn't locked the gates or they weren't locking the gates back in those days and we rounded a corner and there's a big cross stone cross there and an owl flew off of it me and jimmy both screamed <laughs> and then it flew off and we're sitting there jimmy's got the truck you know brakes pressed hard we're sitting there just breathing hard trying to catch our breath trying to you know recompose ourselves and the only thing i could think of to say was fucking bird <laughs> which got us both laughing and we had fun the rest of the night, but that owl scared the shit out of both of us. That was a good one. All right, ladies and gents, the third story for the evening is Hypnos by H.P. Lovecraft. May the merciful gods, if indeed there be such, guard those hours when no power of the will or drug that the cunning of man devises can keep me from the chasm of sleep death is merciful for there is no return therefrom but with him who has come back out of the nethermost chambers of night haggard and knowing peace rests nevermore fool that i was to plunge with such unsanctioned frenzy into mysteries no man was meant to penetrate fooler god that he was my only friend who led me and went before me and in who and who in the end passed into terrors which may yet be mine we met, I recall, in a railway station, where he was the center of a crowd of the vulgarly curious. He was unconscious, having fallen in a kind of convulsion which imparted to his slight black-clad body a strange rigidity. I think he was then approaching forty years of age, for there were deep lines in the face, wan and hollow-cheeked, but oval and actually beautiful and touches of gray in the thick, waving hair and small, full beard, which had once been of the deepest raven black. His brow was white as the marble of Pentelicus, 
and the height and breadth almost godlike. I said to myself with all the ardor of a sculpture, ardor of a sculptor, that this man was a fawn statue out of antique Hellas, dug from a temple's ruin and brought somehow to life in our stifling age only to feel the chill and pressure of devastating years. And then he opened his immense, sunken, and wildly luminous black eyes. I knew he would be thenceforth, thenceforth my only friend. The only friend of one who had never possessed a friend before. For I saw that such eyes must have looked fully upon the grandeur and the terror of realms beyond normal consciousness and reality. Realms which I had cherished in fancy, but vainly sought. So as I drove the crowd away, I told him he must come home with me and he be my teacher and leader of unfathomed mysteries. And he assented without speaking a word. Afterward, I found that his voice was music, the music of deep viols of the crystalline spheres. We talked often in the night and in the day, and I chiseled busts of him and carved miniature heads in ivory to immortalize his different expressions. Of our studies, it is impossible to speak since they held so slight a connection with anything of the world as living men conceive it. They were of that vaster and more appalling universe of dim entity and consciousness which lies deeper than matter, time, and space, and whose existence we suspect only in certain forms of sleep, those rare dreams beyond dreams which come never to common men, but once or twice in the lifetime of an imaginative man. The cosmos of our waking knowledge, born from such a universe as a bubble is born from the pipe of a jester, touches it only as such a bubble may touch its sardonic source when sucked back by the jester's whim. Men of learning suspect it little and ignore it mostly. Wise men have interpreted dreams and the gods have laughed. One man with oriental eyes has said that all time and space are relative, and men have laughed. But even that man with oriental eyes has done no more than suspect. I had wished and tried to do more than suspect, and my friend had tried and partly succeeded. Then we both tried together, and with exotic drugs, courted terrible and forbidden dreams in the tower studio chamber of the old manor house on Hoary Kent. Among the agonies of these afterdays is that chief of torments, inarticulateness. What I learned and saw in those hours of impious exploration, I can never, can never be told. For what of symbols or suggestions in any language? I say this because from first to last our discoveries partook only of the nature of sensations sensations correlated with no impression which the nervous system of normal humanity is capable of receiving they were sensations yet within they within them they lay unbelievable elements of time and space things which at bottom possess no distinct and definite existence human utterance can best convey the general character of our experiences by calling them plungings or soarings for in every period of revelation Revelation, some part of our mind broke boldly away from all that is real and present. Rushing aerially along shocking, unlighted, and fear-haunted abysses, and occasionally tearing through certain well-marked and typical obstacles describable only as viscous, uncouth clouds of vapor. And these black and bodiless flights, we were sometimes alone, sometimes together. When we were together, my friend was always far ahead. I could comprehend his presence despite the absence of form by a species of pictorial memory whereby his face appeared to me, golden from a strange light and frightful from its weird beauty, 
its anomalous youthful cheeks, its burning eyes, its Olympian brow, and its shadowing hair and growth of beard. Of the progress of time we kept no record, for time had become to us the merest illusion. I only know that there must have been something very singular involved, since we came at length to marvel why we did not grow old. Our discourse was unholy and always hideous, hideously ambitious. No god or demon could have aspired to discoveries of conquest like those which we planned in whispers. I shiver, I, I shiver as I speak of them, and I dare not be explicit, though I will say that my friend once wrote on paper a wish which he dared not utter with his tongue, and which made me burn the paper and look affrightedly out of the window at the spangled night sky. I will hint, only hint, that he had designs which involved the rulership of the visible universe and more. Designs whereby the earth and the stars would move at his command and the destinies of all living things be his. I affirm, I swear, that I had no share in these extreme aspirations. Anything my friend may have said or written to the contrary must be erroneous, for I am no man of strength to risk the unmentionable spheres by which one alone might achieve success. There was a night when winds from unknown spaces whirled us irresistibly into limitless vacuum behind all thought and entity. Perceptions of the most maddeningly untransmittable, transmissible sort thronged among us. Perceptions of infinity which at the time convulsed us with joy, yet which are now partly lost to my memory and partly incapable of presentation to others. Viscous ob obstacles were clawed through in rapid succession, at, and at length I felt that we had been born to realms of greater remoteness than any we had previously known. My friend was vastly in advance as we plunged into the awesome ocean of virgin aether, and I could see the sinister exultation in his floating luminous, too youthful memory face. Suddenly that face became dim and quickly disappeared, and in a brief space I found myself projected against an optical obstacle which I could not penetrate. It was like the others, yet incalculably denser, a sticky, clammy mass. If such terms can be applied to analogous quantities of non-material sphere. I had, I felt, been halted by a barrier which my friend and leader had successfully passed. Struggling anew, I came to the end of the drug dream and opened my physical eyes to the tower studio in whose opposite corner reclined the pallid and still unconscious form of my fellow dreamer. Weirdly haggard and wildly beautiful as the moon shed gold-green light on his marble features. Then, after a short interval, the form in the corner stirred, and may pitying heaven keep from my sight and sound another thing like that which took place before me. I cannot tell you how he shrieked, or what vistas of unvistable hells gleamed for a second in black eyes crazed with fright. I can only say that I fainted, and I did not stir till he himself recovered and shook me in his frenzy for someone to keep away the horror and desolation. That was the end of our voluntary searchings in the caverns of dream. Awed, shaken, and portentous. My friend, who had been beyond the barrier, warned me that we must never venture within those realms again. What he had seen, he dared not tell me. But he said from his wisdom that we must sleep as little as possible, even if drugs were, unnecess were necessary to keep us awake. That he was right, I soon learned from the unutterable fear which engulfed me whenever consciousness lapped, lapsed. 
After each short and inevitable sleep, I seemed older, whilst my friend aged with a rapidity almost shocking. It is hideous to see wrinkles form and hair whiten almost before one's eyes. Our mode of life was now totally altered. Heretofore a recluse, so far as I know, this, his true name and origin never having passed his lips. My friend now became frantic in his fear of solitude. At night he would not be alone, nor would the company of a few persons calm him. His sole relief was obtained in revelry of the most generous and boisterous sort, so that few assemblies of the young and gay were unknown to us. Our appearance and age seemed to excite in most cases a ridicule which I keenly resented but which my friend considered a lesser evil than solitude. Especially was he afraid to be out of doors alone when the stars were shining, and if forced to this condition he would go off and glance furtively at the sky as if hunted by some monstrous thing therein. He did not always glance at the same place in the sky. It seemed to be a different place at different times. On spring evenings it would be low in the northeast, in the summer it would be nearly overhead. In the autumn, it would be in the northwest. In winter, it would be in the east, but mostly in the small hours of morning. Midwinter evenings seemed dreadful to him. Only after two years did I connect his fear with anything in particular. But then I began to see that he must be looking for a special spot in the celestial vault whose position at different times corresponded to the direction of his glance, a spot roughly marked by the constellation Corona Borealis. We now had a studio in London never separating, but never discussing the days when we had sought to plumb the mysteries of the unreal world. We were aged and weak from our drugs, dissipations, and nervous overstrain, and the thinning hair and beard of my friend had become snow white. Our freedom from long sleep was surprising, for seldom did we succumb more than an hour or two at a time to the shadow which had now grown so frightful a menace. Then came one January of fog and rain when money ran low and drugs were hard to buy. My statues and ivory heads were all sold, and I had no means to purchase new materials or energy to fashion them even if I had possessed them. He suffered terribly. On a certain night, my friend sank into a deep, breathing sleep from which I could not awaken him. I can recall the scene now, the desolate, pitch-black garret studio, under the eaves of the rain beating down, the ticking of our lone clock, the fancied ticking of our watches, as they rested on the dressing table, the creaking of some swaying shutter in a remote part of the house, certain distant city noises muffled by fog and space, and, worst of all, the deep, steady, sinister breathing of my friend on the couch, a rhythmical breathing which seemed to measure moments of supernal fear and agony for his spirit as it wandered in spheres forbidden, unimagined, and hideously remote. The tension of my visual vigil became oppressive, and the wild train of trivial impressions and associations thronged through my almost unhinged mind. I heard a clock strike somewhere, not ours, for that was not a striking clock, and my morbid fancy found in this new starting point for idle wanderings. Clocks, time, space, infinity. And then my fancy reverted to the locale as I reflected that even now, beyond the roof and the fog and the rain and the atmosphere, Corona Borealis was rising in the northeast. Corona Borealis, which my friend had appeared to dread, and those scintillant semicircle of stars must even now be glowing unseen through the measure, measureless abysses of aether. All at once my feverishly sensitive ears seemed to detect a new and wholly distinct component in the soft medley of drug manif 
magnified sounds. A low and damnably insistent whine from very far away, droning, clamoring, mocking, calling from the northeast. But it was not that distant whine which robbed me of my faculties and set upon my soul such a seal of fright as may never in life be removed. Not that which drew the shrieks and excited the convulsions from which lodgers and police to break down the door. It was not what I heard, but what I saw. For in that dark, locked, shuttered, and curtained room there appeared from the black northeast corner a shaft of horrible red-gold light, a shaft which bore with it no glow to dispense the darkness, but which streamed only upon the recumbent head of the troubled sleeper bringing out in hideous duplication the luminous and strangely youthful memory face as I had known it in dreams of abysmal space and unshackled time, when my friend had pushed behind the barrier to those secret, innermost, and forbidden caverns of nightmare. And as I looked, I beheld the head rise, the black, liquid, and deep-sunken open eyes in terror, and the thin, shadowed lips part as if for a scream too frightful to be uttered, there dwelt in that ghastly inflexible face as it shone bodiless, luminous, and rejuvenated in the blackness more of stark, teeming, brain-shattering fear than all the rest of heaven and earth has ever revealed to me. No word was spoken amidst the distant sound that grew nearer and nearer. But as I followed the memory face's mad stare along that cursed shaft of light to its source, the source whence also the whining came, I, too, saw for the instant what it saw, and fell with ringing ears in that fit of shrieking epilepsy which brought the lodgers and police. Never could I tell, try as I might, what it actually was that I saw, nor could the still face tell, for although... It must have seen more than I did. It will never speak again. But always I shall guard against the mocking insatiate hypnos, lord of sleep, against the night sky, against the mad ambitions of knowledge and philosophy. Just what happened is unknown, for not only was my own mind unseated by the strange and hideous thing, but others were tainted with a forgetfulness which can mean nothing if not madness. They have said I know not for what reason that I never had a friend, but that art, philosophy, and insanity had filled all my tragic life. The lodgers and police on that night soothed me, and the doctor administered something to quiet me. Nor did anyone see what a nightmare event had taken place. My stricken friend moved them to no pity, but what they found on the couch in the studio made them give me a praise which sickened me and now a fame which I spurn in despair as I sit for hours, bald, gray-bearded, shriveled, palsied, drug-crazed and broken, adoring and praying to the object they found. For they deny that I sold the last of my statuary and point with ecstasy at the thing which in the shining shaft of light left cold, petrified and unvocal. It is all that remains of my friend, the friend who led me on to madness and wreckage, a godlike head of such marble as only old Hellas could yield, young with youth that is outside and with a beauteous bearded face, curved, smiling lips, Olympian brow, and dense locks waving and poppy crowned. They say that the haunting memory face is modeled from my own, as it was at twenty-five, but upon the marble base is carven a single name in the letters of Attica. Hypnos. That was a good one. 
Um, this one was kind of recorded. There's a few mistakes. I'm not going to change anything. I read it as I read it. The noise you heard in the background towards the end was my wife's cat knocking down a metal yardstick off of the craft table. That pause you heard right afterwards was me trying not to scream in terror because it scared the shit out of me. Oh, God, reading an intense, you know, Lovecraft story and that happens. That'll scare the living hell out of you. Even if the story isn't that scary, it'll scare the crap out of you when you're not expecting it. Stupid cat. Okay, the uh, next story I'm reading tonight is called The Night Wire by F by H.F. Arnold. It's not a story I've read before, so uh, see if it's any good. There is something ungodly about these night wire jobs. You sit up here on the top floor of a skyscraper and listen in to the whispers of a civilization. New York, London, Calcutta, Bombay, Singapore. They're your next door neighbors after the streetlights go dim and the world has gone to sleep. Alone in the quiet hours between two and four, the receiving operators doze over their sounders and the news comes in. Fires and disasters and suicides, murders, crowds, catastrophes. Sometimes an earthquake with a casualty list as long as your arm. The nightwire man takes it down almost in his sleep, picking it off on the typewriter with one finger. Once in a long time, you prick up your ears and listen. You've heard of someone you knew in Singapore, Halifax, or Paris long ago. Maybe they've been promoted, but more probably they've been murdered or drowned. Perhaps they just decided to quit and took some bizarre way out made it interesting enough to get it in the news. But that doesn't happen often. Most of the time you sit and doze and tap, tap on your typewriter and wish you were home in bed. Sometimes, though, queer things happen. One did the other night, and I haven't got over it yet. I wish I could. You see, the I handle the night manager's desk in a western seaport town. What the name is doesn't matter. There is, or rather was, only one night operator on staff, a fellow named John Morgan, about 40 years of age, I should say, and a sober, hardworking sort. He was one of the best operators I ever knew, what is known as a double man. That means he could handle two instruments at once and type the stories on different typewriters at the same time. He was one of the three men I never knew who could do it consistently, hour after hour, and never make a mistake. Generally, we used only one wire at night, but sometimes when it was late and the news was coming fast, the Chicago and Denver stations would open up a second wire, and then Morgan would do his stuff. He was a wizard, a mechanical automatic wizard, which functioned marvelously, but without imagination. On the night of the 16th, he complained of feeling tired. It was the first and last time I had ever heard him say a word about himself, and I had known him for three years. It was just three o'clock and we were running only one wire. I was nodding over the reports at my desk and not paying much attention to him when he spoke. Jim, he said, does it feel close in here to you? Why, no, John, I answered, but I'll open a window if you like. Never mind, he said, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll reckon I'm just a little tired. That was all that was said and I went on working. 
Every 10 minutes or so, I would walk over and take a pile of copy that was stacked up neatly beside the typewriter, typewriter as the messages were printed out in triplicate. It must have been 20 minutes after he spoke that I noticed he had opened up the other wire and was using both typewriters. I thought it was a little unusual as there was nothing very hot coming in. On my next trip, I picked up the copy from both machines and looked and took it back to my desk to sort out the duplicates. The first wire was running out of the usual sort of stuff, and I just looked over it hurriedly. Then I turned to the second pile of copy. I remembered it particularly because the story was from a town I had never heard of, Zebico. Here's the dispatch. I save a duplicate of it for our files. Zebico, September 16, CP Bulletin. The heaviest mist in the history of the city settled over the town at 4 o'clock yesterday afternoon. All traffic has stopped and the mist hangs on a pall over everything. Lights of ordinary intensity fail to pierce the fog, which is consistently growing heavier. Scientists are here to agree as to the cause, and the local weather bureau states that the like has never occurred before in the history of the city. At 7 p.m. last night, the municipality authorities, and that's all there was. Nothing out of the ordinary at bureau headquarters, but as I say, I noticed the story because of the name of the town. It must have been 15 minutes later that I went over for another batch of copy. Morgan was slumped down in his chair and had switched his green electric light shade so that the gleam missed his eyes and hit only the top of the two typewriters. Only the usual stuff was in the right-hand pile, but the left-hand batch carried another story from Zebico. All press dispatches come in takes, meaning that parts of many different stories are strung to along together, perhaps with but a few paragraphs from each coming through at a time. The second story was marked Ad Fog. Here's the copy. At 7 p.m., the copy had increased noticeably. All lights were now visible. All lights were now invisible, and the town was shrouded in pitch darkness. As a peculiarity of the phenomenon, the fog is accompanied by a sickly odor, comparable to nothing yet experienced here. <clears throat> Below that, in customary press fashion, was the hour 327 and the initials of the operator, J.M. There was only one other story in the pile from the second wire. Here it is. Second, add Zebico fog. Accounts as to the origin of the myth, mist differ greatly. Among the most unusual is that of the section of, section of the local church who groped his way to the headquarters in a hysterical condition and declared that the fog originated in the village churchyard. It was first visible as a soft gray blanket clinging to the earth above the graves, he stated. Then it began to rise higher and higher. A subterranean breeze seemed to blow it in, in billows, which split it up and then joined together again. Fog phantoms writhing in anguish, twisting in the mist into queer forms and figures. And then in the very thick mist of the mass, something moved. I turned and ran from the accursed spot behind me. I heard screams coming from the houses bordering the graveyard. Although the sexton story is generally discredited, a party has left to investigate. Immediately after telling his story, the sexton collapsed and is now in a local hospital, unconscious. Queer story, wasn't it? Not that we aren't used to it, for a lot of unusual stories come in over the wire. But for the reason or another, but for some reason or another, perhaps because it was so quiet that night, the report of the fog made a great impression on me. It was almost with dread that I went over to the waiting piles of copy. 
Morgan did not move, and the only sound in the room was the tap-tap of the sounders. It was ominous, nerve-wracking. There was another story from Zebico on the pile of coffee. I seized on it anxiously. New lead Zebico Fog CP. The rescue party, which went out at 11 p.m. to investigate a weird story of the origin of a fog, which, since late yesterday, has shrouded the city in darkness, has failed to return. Another and larger pantry has been party has been dispatched. Meanwhile, the fog has, if possible, grown heavier. It seeps through the cracks in the doors and fills the atmosphere with a depressing odor of decay. It is oppressive, terrifying, bearing with it a subtle impression of things long dead. Residents of the city have left their homes and gathered in the local church, where the priests are holding services of prayer. The scene is beyond description. Grown folk and children are alike terrified, and many are almost beside themselves with fear. Amid the wisps of vapor which partly veil the church auditorium, an old priest is praying for the welfare of his flock. They alternately wail and cross themselves. From the outskirts of the city may be heard cries of unknown voices. They echo through the fog in queer, uncadenced minor keys. The sound resembles nothing so much as wind whistling through a gigantic tunnel. But the night is calm and there is no wind. The second rescue party, more. I am a calm man, and I never in a dozen years spent with the wires have I been known to become excited. But despite myself, I rose from my chair and I walked to the window. Could I be mistaken, or far down in the canyons of the city beneath me did I see a faint trace of fog? Pshaw. It was all imagination. In the press room, the click of the sounder seemed to have raised the tempo of their tune. Morgan alone had not stirred from his chair. He had sunk between his, sh his head sunk between his shoulders. He tapped the dispatches out on the typewriters with one finger of each hand. He looked asleep, but no, endlessly, efficiently, the two machines rattled off line after line, as relentlessly and effortlessly as death itself. As death itself. There was something about the monotonous movement of the typewriter keys that fascinated me. I walked over and stood behind his chair, reading over his shoulder the type as it came into the being, word by word. Ah, here was another. Flash, Zebico CP. There will be no more bulletins from this office. The impossible has happened. No messages have come into this room for 20 minutes. We are cut off from the outside and even the streets below us. I will stay with the wire until the end. It is the end, indeed. Since 4 p.m. yesterday, the fog has hung over the city. Following reports from the sexton of the local church, two rescue parties were sent out to investigate, investigate conditions on the outskirts of the city. Neither party has ever returned, nor was any word received from them. It is quite certain now what, that they will never return. From my instrument, I can gaze down on the city beneath me. From the position of this room on the 13th floor, nearly the entire city can be seen. Now I can see only a thick blanket of blackness where customarily are lights in life. I fear greatly that the wailing cries heard constantly from the outskirts of the city are the death cries of the inhabitants. They are constantly increasing in volume and are approaching the center of the city. The fog yet hangs over everything. If possible, it is even heavier than before. But the conditions have changed. Instead of an opaque, impenetrable wall of odorous vapor, there now swirls and rises a shapeless mass in contortions of almost hung human agony now and again the mass parts and i catch a brief glimpse of the streets below people are running to and fro screaming in despair a vast bedlam of sound flies up to my window and above all in the immense whistling of unseen unfelt winds the fog is 
has again swept over the city and is whistling is coming closer and closer. It is now directly beneath me. God, an instant ago the mist opened and I caught a glimpse of the streets below. The fog is not simply vapor. It lives. By the sight of each moaning and weeping human, human is a companion figure, an aura of strange and varicolored hues. Now the shapes cling, each to a living thing. The men and women are down, flat on their faces. The fog figures caress them lovingly. They are kneeling beside them. They are. But I dare not tell it. The prone and writhing bodies have been stripped of their clothing. They are being consumed. Piecemeal. A merciful wall of hot, steaming vapor was swept over the whole scene. I can see no more. Beneath me, the wall of vapor is changing colors. It seems to be lighted by internal fires. No, it isn't. I have made a mistake. The colors are from above, reflections from the sky. Look up, look up. The whole sky is in flames. Colors as yet unseen by man or demon. The flames are moving. They have started to intermix. The colors are rearranging themselves. They are so brilliant that my eyes burn. They are a long way off. Now they have begun to swirl, to circle in and out, twisting in intricate designs and patterns. The lights are racing with each other, a kaleidoscope of unearthly brilliance. I have made a discovery. There is nothing harmful in the lights. They radiate force and friendliness, almost cheeriness. But by their very strength, they hurt. As I look, they are swinging closer and closer, a million miles at each jump, millions of miles within the speed of light. Aye, it is light of quintessence of all light. Beneath it, it, the fog melts in a jeweled mist radiant, rainbow-colored, of a thousand varied spectra. I can see the streets. Why, they are filled with people. The lights are coming closer. They are all around me. I am enveloped. I... The message stopped abruptly. The wire to Zebico was dead. Beneath my eyes, in the narrow circle of light from under the green lampshade, the black printing no longer spun itself, letter by letter, across the page. The room seemed filled with a solemn quiet, a silence vaguely impressive, powerful. I looked down at Morgan. His hands had dropped nervously, nervelessly at his sides while his body had hunched over peculiarly. I turned the lampshade back, throwing light squarely on his face. His eyes were staring, fixed. With a sudden foreboding, I stepped beside him and called Chicago on the wire. After a second, the sounder clicked its answer. Why? But there was something wrong. Chicago was reporting that wire two had not been used throughout the evening. Morgan. Morgan. I shouted, Morgan, wake up. It isn't true. Someone has been hoaxing us. Why, in my eagerness, I grasped him by the shoulder. His body was quite cold. Morgan had been dead for hours. Could it be that his sensitized brain and automatic fingers had continued to record impressions even after the end? I shall never know, for I shall never again handle the night shift. Search in a world atlas discloses no town of Zebico. Whatever it was that killed John Morgan will forever remain a mystery. Okay, I am going to find more stuff by H.F. Arnold. That was a damn good story. <laughs> a little weird, kind of, kind of odd, but it was, it was really good. It was a hell of a lot easier to read than H.P. Lovecraft too. Uh, man, I gotta find another one now. I just want to keep on going. I'm gonna. Uh, Go probably for one more story, and I will uh, call it a good day, uh, call it a night after that. But let's go.
Okay, folks, we're going to do one more story. This one will be The Damned Thing by Ambrose Bierce. By the light of a tallow candle, which had been placed on one end of a rough table, a man was reading something written in a book. It was an old account book, greatly worn, and the writing was not apparently very legible. But the man sometimes held the page close to the flame of the candle to get a stronger light upon it. The shadow of the book would then throw into obscurity a half of the room, darkening a number of faces and figures, for besides the reader, eight other men were present. Seven of them sat against their rough log walls, silent and motionless, and the room being small, not very far from the table. By extending an arm, any one of them could have touched the eighth man who lay on the table, face upward, partly covered by a sheet, his arms at his side. He was dead. The man with the book was not reading aloud, and no one spoke. All seemed to be waiting for something to occur. The dead man was only without expectation. From the blank darkness outside came in through the aperture aperture that served for a window. All the other all the ever unfamiliar noises of night in the wilderness, the long nameless note of a distant coyote, the stilly pulsing thrill of tireless insects in the trees. Strange cries of night birds, so different from those of the birds of day. The drone of great blundering beetles and all that mysterious chorus of small sounds that seemed always to have been but half heard when they have suddenly ceased, as if conscious of an indiscretion. But nothing of all this was noted in that company. Its members were not overmuch addicted to idle interest in matters of no practical importance. That was obvious in every line of their rugged faces, obvious even in the dim light of the single candle. They were evidently men of the vicinity, farmers and woodsmen. The person reading was a trifle different. One would have said of him that he was of the world, albeit there was that in his attire which attested a certain fellowship with the organisms of his environment. His coat would hardly have passed muster in San Francisco. His footgear was not of urban origin. And the hat that lay by him on the floor, he was the only one uncovered, was such that if one had considered it an article of mere personal adornment, he would have missed its meaning. In countenance, the man was rather prepossessing, with just a hint of sternness. Although that he may have assumed or cultivated as appropriate to one in authority, for he was a coroner. It was by virtue of his office that he had possession of the book in which he was reading. It had been found among the dead man's effects, in his cabin, where the inquest was now taking place. When the coroner had finished reading, he put the book into, the breast, into his breast pocket. At that moment, the door was pushed open and a young man entered. He, clearly, was not of mountain birth and breeding. He was clad in those who dwell in cities. His clothing was dusty, however, as from travel. He had, in fact, been riding hard to attend the inquest. The coroner nodded, and no one else greeted him. We have waited for you, said the coroner. It is necessary to have done with this business tonight. The young man smiled. I am sorry to have kept you, he said. I went away not to evade your summons, but to post my newspaper in an account of what I was supposed I am called back to relate. The coroner smiled. The account that which that you posted to your newspaper, he said, differs probably from that which you will give here under oath. That, replied the other, rather hotly and with a visible flush, is 
as you choose. I use manifold paper and I have a copy of what I sent. I was not written as, it was not written as news, for it is incredible, but it's fiction. It may go as part of my testimony under oath. But you say it, it is incredible. That is nothing to you, sir, if I also swear that it is true. The coroner was apparently not greatly affected by the young man's manifest resentment. He was silent for some moments, his eyes upon the floor. The men about the sides of the cabin talked in whispers, whispers, but seldom withdrew their gaze from the face of the corpse. Presently, the coroner lifted his eyes and said, We will resume the inquest. The men re removed their hats, the witness sworn. What is your name? the coroner asked. William Harker. Age? 27. You knew the deceased, Hugh Morgan? Yes. You were with him when he died? Near him. How did that happen? Your presence, I mean. I was visiting him at a place to shoot and fish. Part of my purpose, however, was to study him and his odd, solitary way of life. He seemed a good model for a character in fiction. I sometimes write stories. I sometimes read them. Thank you. Stories in general, not yours. Some of the jurors laughed. Against a somber background, humor shows highlights. Soldiers in the intervals of battle laugh easily, and a jest in the death chamber conquers by surprise. Relate the circumstances of this man's death, said the coroner. You may use any notes or memoranda that you please. The witness understood. Pulling a manuscript from his breast pocket, he held it near the candle and turning the leaves until he found the passage that he wanted and began to read. The sun had hardly risen when we left the house. We were looking for quail, each with a shotgun. But we had only one dog. Morgan said that our best ground was beyond a certain ridge that he pointed out. And we crossed it by trail through sh the chaparral. On the other side was comparatively, comparatively level ground, thickly covered with wild oats. As we emerged from the chaparral, Morgan was but a few yards in advance. Suddenly we heard a little at a little distance to our right and partly in front, a noise as of some animal thrashing about in the bushes, which we could see were violently agitated. We've started a deer, I said. I wish we had brought a rifle. Morgan, who had stopped and was intently watching the agitated chaparral, said nothing, but had cocked both barrels of his gun and was holding it in readiness to aim. I thought him a trifle excited which surprised me for he had a reputation of exceptional coolness even in moments of sudden and Im imminent peril oh come i said you're not going to fill up a deer with quail shot are you still he did not reply but catching a sight of his face as he turned it slightly towards me i was struck with the pallor of it then i understood that we had a serious business on hand and my first conjecture was that we had jumped a grizzly I advanced to Morgan's side, cocking my piece as I moved. The bushes were quiet now, and the sounds had ceased, but Morgan was as attentive to the place as before. What is it? What the devil is it? I asked. That damned thing, he replied without turning his head. His voice was husky and unnatural. He trembled visibly. I was about to speak further when I observed the wild oats near the place of the disturbance moving in the most inexplicable way. I can hardly describe it. It seemed as if it stirred by a streak of wind, which only bent it, but pressed it down, crushed it so that it did not rise. And this movement slowly prolonging itself directly toward us. Nothing that I have ever seen had affected me so strangely. 
as this unfamiliar and unaccountable phenomenon, yet I am unable to recall any sense of fear. I remember, and I tell it here because singularly enough, I recollected it then, that once, in looking carelessly out of an open window, I momentarily mistook a small tree close at hand for one of the group of larger trees at a distance a little away. It looked the same size as the others, but being more distinctly and sharply defined in mass and detail. Seemed out of harmony with them. It was a mere falsification of the law of aerial perspective. But it started, almost terrified me. So we rely upon the orderly operation of familiar natural laws that any seeming suspension of them is noticed as a menace to our safety. A warning of unthinkable calamity. So now, the apparently causeless movement of the herbage and the slow, undeviating approach of the line of disturbance were distinctly disquieting. My companion appeared actually frightened, and I could hardly credit my senses when I saw him suddenly throw his gun to his shoulders and fire both barrels at the agitated grass. Before the smoke of the discharge had cleared away, I heard a loud, savage cry. A scream like that of a wild animal, and flinging his gun upon the ground, Morgan sprang away and ran swiftly from the spot. At the same time, at the same instant, I was thrown violently to the ground by the impact of something unseen in the smoke. Some soft, heavy substance that seemed thrown against me with great force. Before I could get upon my feet and recover my gun, which seemed to have been stuck, struck from my hands, I heard Morgan crying out as if in mortal agony. And mingling with his cries were such hoarse, savage sounds as one hears from fighting dogs. Inexpressibly terrified, I struggled to my feet and looked in the direction of Morgan's retreat. And may heaven in mercy spare me from another sight like that. At a distance of less than 30 yards was my friend down upon one knee, his head thrown back at a frightful angle. Hatless, his long hair in disorder and his whole body in violent movement from side to side, backward and forward. His right arm was lifted and seemed to lack the hand. At least I could see none. The other arm was invisible. At times, as my memory now reports this extraordinary scene, I could discern but a part of his body. It was as if he'd been partly blotted out. I cannot otherwise express it. Then a shifting of his position would bring it all into view again. All this must have occurred within a few seconds. Yet in that time, Morgan assumed all the postures of a determined wrestler vanquished by his superior weight and strength. I saw nothing but him and him not always distinctly. During the entire incident, his shouts and curses were heard as if through an enveloping roar of such sounds of rage and fury that I have never heard from the throat of man or brute. For a moment, I only stood irresolute. Then throwing down my gun, I ran forward to my friend's assistance. I had a vague belief that he was suffering from a fit or some form of convulsion. Before I could reach his side, he was down and quiet. All sounds had ceased, but with a feeling of such terror as even these awful events had not inspired. I now saw the same mysterious movement of the wild oats prolonging itself from the trampled area about the prostrate man toward the edge of the wood. It was only when it had reached the wood that I was able to withdraw my eyes and look back at my companion. He was dead. The coroner rose from his seat and stood beside the dead man. Lifting an edge of the sheet, he pulled it away, exposing the entire body altogether naked and showing in the candle lit a clay-like yellow. It had, however, broad maculations of bluish black, obviously caused by extravated blood from, from contusions. The chest and sides looked as if they'd been beaten with a bludgeon. 
They were dreadful lacerations. The skin was torn in strips and shreds. The coroner moved around to the end of the table and undid a silk handkerchief, which had been passed under the chin and knotted on the top of the head. When the handkerchief was drawn away, it exposed that it had been it exposed it exposed what had been his throat. Some of the jurors who had risen to get a better view repented their curiosity and turned away their faces. Witness Harker went to the open window and leaned out across the sill, faint and sick. Dropping the handkerchief upon the dead man's neck, the coroner stepped to an angle of the room and from a pile of clothing produced one garment after another, each of which held, he held up for a moment for inspection. All were torn and stiff with blood. The jurors did not make a closer inspection. They seemed rather uninterested. They had, in truth, seen all this before, the only thing that was new to them being Harker's testimony. Gentlemen, the coroner said, we have no more evidence, I think. Your duty was to already explain, has been already explained to you. If there is nothing you wish to ask, you may go outside and consider your verdict. A foreman rose, a tall, bearded man of sixty, coarsely clad. I should like to ask one question, Mr. Coroner, he said. What asylum did this dear last witness escape from? Mr. Harker, said the coroner gravely and tranquilly, from what asylum did you escape? Harker flushed crimson again, but said nothing. The seven jurors rose and solemnly filled out of the cabin. If you have done insulting me, sir, said Harker, as soon as he and the other officers were alone in, with the dead man, I suppose I am at liberty to go? Yes. Harker started to leave, but paused, with his hand on the door latch. The habit of his profession was strong in him, stronger than his sense of personal dignity. He turned about and said, The book that you have there, I recognize it as Morgan's diary. You seemed greatly interested in it. You read it in, you read in it while I was testifying. May I see it? The public would like, the book will cut you no figure in this matter replied the official, slipping it into his coat pocket. All the entries in it were made before the writer's death. As Harker passed out of the house, the jury re-entered and stood about the table, on which the now-covered corpse showed under the sheet with sharp definition. The foreman seated himself near the candle, produced from his breast pocket a pencil and scrap of paper, and wrote rather laboriously the following verdict, which, with various degrees of effort, all signed. We, the jury, do find that the remains come to the death of the hands of a mountain lion, but some of us thinks, all the same, they had fits. In the diary of the late Hugh Morgan are certain interesting entries having possibly a scientific value as suggestions. At the inquest upon the, his body, the book was not put in evidence. Possibly the coroner thought it would not. Coroner thought it would not worthwhile to confuse the jury. The date of the first entries mentioned cannot be ascertained. The upper part of the leaf is torn away. The part of the entry remaining is as follows. Would run in half circle, keeping his head turned always toward the center, and again he would stand still, barking furiously. At least he ran away into at last he ran away into the brush as fast as he could go. I thought at first that he had gone mad, but on returning to the house found no other alteration in his manner, and that was obviously due to fear of punishment. Can a dog see with its nose? Do odors impress some olfactory center in, with images of the thing emitting them? Looking at the stars last night as they rose above the crest of the 
right ridge east of the house, I observed them successively disappear from left to right. Each was eclipsed but an instant, and only a few at the same time. But along the entire length of the ridge, all that were within a degree of two of the crest were blotted out. It was as if something had passed along between me and them, but I could not see it, and the stars were not thick enough to define its outline. Ugh, I don't like this. Several weeks, entries are missing, three leaves being torn from the book. September 27. It has been out here again. I find evidences of its presence every day. I watched again all of last night in the same cover, gun in hand, double charged with buckshot. In the morning, the fresh footprints were there, as before, yet I would have sworn that I did not sleep. Indeed, I hardly slept at all. It is terrible, unsupportable. If these amazing experiences are real, I shall go mad. If they are fanciful, I am mad already. October 3rd. I shall not go. It shall not drive me away. No. This is my house, my land. God hates a coward. October 5th. I can stand it no longer. I have invited Harker to pass a few weeks with me. He has a level head. I can judge from his manner if he thinks me mad. October 7th. I have the solution of the problem. It came to me last night. Suddenly, as by revelation, how simple, how terribly simple. There are sounds we cannot bear. There are sounds we cannot hear. At either end of the scale are notes that stir no chord, that imperfect instrument, the human ear. They are too high or too grave. I have observed a flock of blackbirds occupying an entire treetop, the top of, of several trees, and all in full song. Suddenly in a moment, at absolutely the same instant, all spring into the air and fly away. How? They could not all see each other. Whole treetops intervene, and no point could a leader have been visible to all. There must have been a signal or warning or command high and shrill above the din, but by me unheard. I have observed, too, the same simultaneous flight when all were silent among not only blackbirds but other birds. Quail, for example. Widely separated by bushes, even on opposite sides of a hill. It is known to seamen that a school of whales basking or sporting on the surface of the ocean miles apart with the convexity of the earth between them will sometimes dive at the same instant. All gone out of sight in a moment. The signal has been sounded. Too grave for the ear of the sailor at the masthead and the comrades on the deck who nevertheless feel his vibrations in the ship as the stones of the cathedral are stirred by the base of the organ, stirred by the base of the organ. As with sound, so with colors. At each end of the solar spectrum, the chemist can detect the presence of what are known as acnitic rays. They represent colors, integral colors in the com composition of light, which we are unable to discern. The human eye is an imperfect instrument. Its range is but a few octaves of the real chromatic scale. I am not mad. There are colors we cannot see. And God help me, the damn thing is of such a color. Well, I have to say, that's an interesting story. I've, I've never actually read anything by Ambrose Bierce. I, I've heard of him, and I've you know heard things of him and of his stories. He was around the same time of, uh, of uh, Lovecraft, I do believe. I don't know if they were actually known to each other. I think they were known to each other. I'm sure Lovecraft knew him or knew of him. Um, but I'm going to have to read more of his stuff. <laughs> that was a pretty good story. Interesting. And uh, I 
think we might be done for tonight. Yeah, I think we're done for tonight. That's a pretty long episode. Um, yeah, <laughs> I got nothing else. I can't think. I've been reading too much. Be right back, folks. Okay, ladies and gents, that is the Halloween episode. I think I'm going to plan those out better next year. Like the Halloween episode, I I, I don't think you're going to get a Christmas episode for me, but you might. You never know. I don't think I'm going to do any Thanksgiving episodes, but I don't know. If I can find some decent, I guess, Thanksgiving-themed episodes or stories, excuse me, or same thing with Christmas, if I can find some really good scary or spooky stories that are themed to christmas you might get one um gonna say again thank you for listening and i'm also gonna give a shout out to andres herrera one more time entropy in motion music on instagram decibels deep podcast on spotify and he also has a uh instagram page for the decibels deep podcast um Showing some love. He's he's the one that got me started on all this again. I will tout his name the entire time unless he pisses me off. <laughs> um, he's the one that got me started on the podcast. He's the one that's given me the entry and outro, uh, the intro and outro music for the podcast. He's a great guy. Show him some love. Start following him. Listen to his podcast. Great, great podcast about music. And I don't listen to it enough. I need to get caught up on episodes with him. But anyway, um. As I leave, I will again talk to you folks about the um, uh, support page. You get onto the Spotify homepage, and there is a link in there that adds to the or that takes you to the support page for my podcast. It works kind of like Patreon or Utreon, where you can pay a monthly amount. There's ninety nine cents. There's four ninety nine. Or there's nine ninety nine. It gives you three different tiers. Um, you don't have to do monthly, but it does help me out quite a bit if you do monthly. Um, you know, hell, if it's a, a 99 cents a month, that's fine. It'll build up over time. I won't touch that money for quite some time, or I try not to anyway. Um, I've got one supporter, <laughs> one actual supporter who does it. I think he still does it. I don't know. I haven't actually checked in a while, but, um, and again, you don't have to do it monthly. You can do a one-time thing and then cancel that subscription kind of thing. It, it, it does help out. I need to, you know, try to earn some more money so I can get some better equipment here. My headphones, I'm listening through the right side of the headphone because the left side went out as I was recording. <laughs> that should tell you how cheap I buy shit. Um, but again, if you do that, I would be very, very grateful. I am going to come up with a list of perks for the uh, 9.99 supporters as most of you know i am an artist as well and i would think that uh prints of illustrations that i do of these stories that i've read would be perks you know you get a free illustration for the uh the tier kind of thing or um you would even get, or better yet, you would get that instead. Whatever you choose, really. 
mentioned on the podcast as a supporter. You know, you were basically the sponsor of the podcast kind of thing. And uh, I would happily do that. And I would happily do both for, e for every person who sponsors. But um, I think I'm going to have to make out a list of what I need to do. I'll work on that this week. And uh, this will be this week's episode. And I will have more episodes out next week, the week after, everything like that. I'm not going to slack like I have been. So thank you for listening, folks. And I want you all to have a wonderful Halloween. Be safe out there. Make sure the kiddos are safe. And uh, scare the crap out of many, as many people as you can. It's so much fun. My wife hates it, but I love it. <laughs> See you on the next one, folks.